Welcome back to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we break down the practice-changing research from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Chen, one of this year's editorial fellows. Every 40 seconds, another patient has a stroke here in the United States. The majority of these are due to acute ischemia. Thrombolysis is a pharmacologic treatment used in acute ischemic stroke, and current treatment guidelines reflect the mantra, time is brain and recommends that thrombolysis be carried out at a maximum of four and a half hours from the time of onset of stroke symptoms. Since the early thrombolysis studies, there is increasing evidence that time intervals beyond four and a half hours may still have clinical benefit. Recently, two studies have been published in the journal that challenge this time threshold. Firstly, the thrombolysis guided by perfusion imaging up to nine hours after the onset of stroke and also the MRI-guided thrombolysis for stroke with unknown time of onset, or the wake-up trial. In today's podcast, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the literature to discuss what is acute ischemic stroke and what is thrombolysis, where did the original recommendations for a maximum time to thrombolysis of four and a half hours come from, how have contemporary thrombectomy trials and imaging modalities changed the way we think about brain tissue viability following ischemia, And finally, we will discuss both extend and wake up and their potential implications for future practice. Joining in discussion is Dr. Stephen Feske. Dr. Feske is a neurologist and the director of the stroke division at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. We're very excited to have Dr. Feske on the show today, so welcome. Thank you for having me, Angela. So I'm just going to start with the basics and cut straight to it. Sometimes there is a bit of confusion about what is meant by an acute ischemic stroke. So would you mind defining what the term is and then outlining some of the underlying causes? Okay. So acute just refers to the time. So we're talking about the very early stages of a stroke. And Mm -hmm. a stroke is simply an infarct in the brain. Mm -hmm. So when the brain is deprived of blood from the blockage of a blood vessel, the loss of that energy in the form of the uh, oxygen and glucose causes mm-hmm. the tissue to die, and that area of injured tissue or dead tissue is, the, is an ischemic stroke. Blood clots moving through the circulation from a source that's usually the heart, but could be from other sources, mm-hmm. and often in patients who have heart disease, especially atrial fibrillation. Strokes can also be caused by atherosclerotic disease or other disease of the vessels, which can be a source of emboli or can occlude vessels and increase flow. Mm-hmm. And the other common cause is small vessel disease. So in patients, for example, patients with hypertension have wear and tear on their vessels over many years. And the very small vessels will be injured and will eventually occlude, and that can cause a type of stroke called lacuna stroke. And to lay a bit more background, so what is thrombolysis and how does it work to treat an acute ischemic stroke? So thrombolysis is the use of drugs that dissolve clots. So again, a stroke is almost always caused by a blood clot in the vessel. And if we can give drugs to dissolve those clots, we can open up the vessels very rapidly and hopefully decrease the period of time the tissues are deprived of its blood and decrease the size of strokes. So Mm -hmm. thrombolytic drugs are drugs that take advantage of the natural thrombolytic processes and Uh promote them. So can you describe a little bit of how thrombolysis, its underlying mechanism of action? So the commonest thrombolytic we use is TPA. Mm-hmm. tissue plasminogen activator, and plasminogen is a natural thrombolytic, and so the activation of plasmin increases the dissolution of blood clots. Okay. And I understand that the FDA first approved the use of TPA in 1996 um, following the nan- landmark National Institute of Neurological Disease and Stroke Recombinant Tissue Plasminogen Activator Stroke Study, NINDS-RTPA study. 
can you tell us a bit more about what this trial found and why it changed practice? Right. So before that study, there were really no direct treatments of stroke. Mm -hmm. Patients with strokes were stabilized and there was no treatment to actually minimize the size of the stroke. So the idea here was if if we could give patients a thrombolytic drug, Mm -hmm. TPA, that we could reduce the size of the stroke. So patients were treated in that study within, this is where the, well, the short answer I'll say, the short answer is within three hours. Okay. And patients did better in the analysis at three months. So if you looked at patients three months after their stroke, if they got TPA, they did significantly better than if they got standard treatment. That study is what led to the three-hour window, which was used for many years, the three-hour limit. Actually, the study, half the patients in that study by design were treated within uh, 90 minutes, within an hour and a half. Okay, I see. Um, And also that study was designed to be in two parts, to be really two studies, one following the other. And so the first study, they were looking at the benefit at 24 hours based on the neurological exam or systematic Mm -hmm. neurological exam. And the second study, they were looking at the benefit at three months, so the clinical outcome at three months. And they enrolled patients sequentially in the two studies, but also they analyzed all the patients for both outcomes, so for the 24-hour outcome and for the three-month outcome. So the benefit, technically speaking, wasn't shown in the 24-hour outcome. But if you actually look closely, you look at the patients who were treated within 90 minutes, you see a benefit there. So that was probably partly an artifact of the measures that they used. There was a clear benefit at the 90-day. So that was revolutionary. That led to the implementation of uh, thrombolytics in practice for stroke. And because three hours was the limit in that Mm -hmm. trial, the time window within which we could treat patients. Sure. I just wanted to tease out some small nuances on that. You had also mentioned that this original trial had set their time cutoff at 180 minutes, and they actually had a subset of patients where they were treated within 90 minutes. So from this trial, how did we come to think about four and a half hours as a time cutoff now? Would you be able to tell us a bit more about that? Right. So in this trial, again, three hours was the limit, and that was what was approved initially, and that's how we treated patients initially. There were other studies. There was a series of studies in Europe and then other studies, a study called ECAS and a study called Atlantis, that enrolled patients with similar protocols Mm -hmm. comparing TPA to standard treatment. And in those studies, they enrolled patients up to six hours. So those studies were actually technically negative for their major endpoint. Okay. But if there was a major meta-analysis looking at the patients from ECAS, which was a European study, from Atlantis and from the NINDS trial, And if you take all of those patients and look at all of their outcomes, what you see is the shorter the time from onset to treatment, the better patients do. Mm. And you can see a significant benefit, a decreasing benefit, but a significant benefit out to about four and a half hours. Okay. So a study was designed, one of the ECAS studies, one of the European studies was designed to look at that question directly. Could we Mm -hmm. treat patients? They initially designed it for six hours, but when mm-hmm. they did the meta-analysis and saw where it fell, they changed uh, the okay. protocol to looking at patients oh, to four and a half. And so that study, which was the yeah. ECAS-3 study published in 2008, showed a benefit out to four and a half hours. Again, there were some details. They excluded some patients, older patients, patients with um, diabetes and stroke, patients with very high NIH stroke scales. That is very bad neurological exams coming in. Mm-hmm. But other patients were a similar group of patients included. And so in that study, patients benefited out again to four and a half hours. Okay. The size of the benefit was smaller. Okay. And I so see. one of the big 
messages there is that even though then we were able to treat patients out to four and a half hours, it's still important to treat them as early as possible. What proportion of patients are actually able to make it within that time period? And then what proportion of patients with acute stroke actually fall outside of that time period? That's been a big frustration in the stroke community. So even though this was a revolutionary new treatment, it turned out that relatively few patients were actually getting the treatment. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of reasons for that, but the main reason was always delay in presentation. I see. And so in our practice, probably roughly 30% or something on that order are treated. But if you look across the nationwide, it's a a much lower number. Okay. So that's why trying to look to extend that time frame or is, would be considered very important in improving our therapy and our approaches to these patients if possible. Right, exactly. So the frustration was we weren't able to treat enough patients. And so since that trial or those trials, there's been a big effort to find ways to include more patients, to find Mm -hmm. patients who are suitable for therapy, who can benefit from therapy that we originally treated. No, absolutely. So now that it has been more than 20 years since those initial thrombolysis trials, my understanding is that there has been a lot that has changed in acute stroke management, particularly with um, the thrombectomy trials. Neuroimaging has certainly changed a lot. Can you tell us a bit about how all of this taken together has changed the way we think about brain tissue viability after ischemia? Right. So yes, a lot of things have changed since, just to kind of summarize the changes, Mm -hmm. that and the publication of the NANDS NANDS trial Mm -hmm. led to system changes. So Mm -hmm. immediately people felt the need to get patients in fast. So there was a community education, there was organization of EMS systems and emergency rooms, and uh, there were telestroke systems were developed. And so that we could move patients in fast Mm -hmm. and an effort's been made to increase the time window by looking at studies such as the ECAS study. And also a lot of work has been done with opening vessels. As it developed, it became more mechanical, basically putting snares directly into the arteries and pulling the clots out. And those studies have been quite successful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in large part from those studies that we have learned something significant about stroke pathophysiology. Mm-hmm. We have been doing thrombolytic treatment for many, many years. Mm-hmm. There was one trial that showed a benefit of intravenous thrombolysis. Mm-hmm. It was never replicated because as technology moved on, people developed these new therapies, mechanically pulling out the clots. There were several studies in 2013 that actually mm-hmm. didn't show a benefit of that therapy. And I think there were a lot of problems with those studies. So just two years later in 2015, there were five studies in the New England Journal that showed a benefit. Yeah, And that therapy was beneficial. The studies were different one from another, but basically up to about six hours. Okay, interesting. And we still then were finding there were lots of patients we couldn't treat. Uh-huh. And so in 2018, two studies were published showing benefit of that therapy, that is mechanical thrombectomy, up to 24 hours. Okay. And so I think one of the things we've learned from that about mm-hmm. pathophysiology, as you ask, is that the time is a very rough surrogate for the pathophysiological processes that are occurring with stroke. And in one patient, their stroke may develop very rapidly. So once their vessel's occluded, the tissue may infarct very rapidly. In another patient, the blood vessel may be occluded, but it may take them many, many, many hours before the tissue infarcts. So they are very rapid progressors and they are slow progressors. And so if we can 
identify these slow progressors, we can possibly treat patients who otherwise, if we were using just a time window criterion for treatment, would be excluded. Mm. The difference is probably in, in progression rate is probably based on collateral flow. Some patients have poor collateral flow, so when that blood vessel is occluded, their tissue is not seeing any blood and it infarcts quickly. In other patients, that vessel is occluded, but the surrounding vessels provide enough flow to maintain the tissue for many hours. When they looked at those papers where they did the mechanical thrombectomy, most of the time it sounded like it was the bigger vessels that they could do the thrombectomy in. Well, you can only do thrombectomy if you have a target. Yeah. That is, you have a clot in a visible vessel that you mm. can access and that it's in a proximal enough vessel mm-hmm. uh, that you can get the stint retriever there, that of is course. the device there. Yeah. So those studies target the commonest place for vessels to lodge is the okay. middle cerebral artery stem, yeah, which is course. a proximal vessel. Mm-hmm. The embolic clots can also lodge in the terminus of the internal carotid artery. Mm-hmm. So those studies are really looking at patients who have occlusions in those sites. Mm-hmm. So what we would say the terminus of the internal carotid, the M1 segment, which is the first segment of the middle cerebral artery, and beyond that, we we'll also treat patients with what we would call M2 segment, but slightly beyond that, we can say. We'll also treat patients with posterior circulation disease, but the study is, I think, trying to get a very precise and phenotype for study, for the mm-hmm. purposes of study. The, the successful studies excluded those patients in trials. So from these thrombectomy studies, have we come to think of the time window as potentially larger, particularly for those who have more collateral flow or less likely to infarct quickly? Well, there has always been a population of patients mm-hmm. who come to the emergency room having awakened with stroke symptoms. When that occurs, we don't know what the onset time is. And so mm-hmm. we've known that there may be patients who were last seen well hours before because they went to sleep. They were seen shortly before that. Um, and then when they come in, if we use last seen well as the time we start the clock, mm-hmm. they're excluded by time. However, we suspect that some of those may have strokes that happened much earlier. Mm-hmm. So part of it is just simply not knowing the onset time and frustration of thinking that this patient probably could benefit, but based on the protocols we have, we didn't feel comfortable treating them. Mm-hmm. That was part of it. And then the other part is, I think what you say, that we feel like even though all patients won't tolerate it, some patients will tolerate the occlusion for a significant time and can benefit from, from therapies beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, these trials were designed for, and going on simultaneously. So I think there's been a lot of knowledge about collaterals and a suspicion that this effect, we would see this effect. That is, we could choose patients by imaging for any therapies available that were recanalizing therapies. So it made sense to do that with endovascular therapies, and now that's been done successful. But then we can only, as I said, we can only use endovascular therapies in patients who have a detectable target clot, and there are a lot of patients who don't have that who mm-hmm. also may benefit. So it makes sense to use intravenous therapies. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a bit more about these two trials, though. If we start with the wake-up trial, this was performed by Tomala and colleagues and published in the journal in August of 2018. Um, It was a multicenter randomised control trial that randomised patients who had woken up with stroke symptoms to thrombolysis or placebo based on MRI findings. And as you have alluded to, the actual time of stroke onset was unknown. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about this trial? Okay, so the wake-up trial was designed to address the problem we're talking about. We have mm-hmm. patients who are seen, they go to bed, they wake up, and no one knows when their stroke actually occurred. Mm-hmm. There are also patients for whom we don't know the onset time because they are simply confused or aphasic and they can't express that and no one witnessed the onset. 
So Wake Up was intended to address that. The basic idea in Wake Up was to try to estimate the time using imaging and to try to treat patients who we thought had had an infarct within about four and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And so the way they did that is they used MRI. And MRIs of the brain have several different sequences. So one sequence calls the diffusion image. On that sequence, we see the stroke very rapidly. We see the infarcted territory very rapidly within minutes. There's another sequence called the flare. And on that sequence, it takes several hours for the stroke to develop. And so if you compare, if a patient comes in and you do uh, an MRI and you look at those two sequences, and if there's a small stroke on the DWI or the diffusion image, but in that same territory you don't see it on the flare, then you're going to make the assumption that it's there, it just hasn't had enough time to become positive on the flare. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the timing of that evolution on the flare, then roughly you can guess that that's within about four and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And um, you get a false positive rate of somewhere between 80 and 95% if you do that. So 80 to 95% of your patients are going to be within four and a half hours if you do that. So that's how this was designed. So they took patients who had wake-up strokes and who uh, couldn't be treated within four and a half hours, because that would have been treated within standard of care, and who they thought they could treat within 24 hours. They did MR, and if they had this mismatch, that is the diffusion was positive but the flare was negative, then they were treated. Okay, I see. And that showed uh, clinical benefit in terms of neurological outcomes out to 90 days in those who were treated within their protocol. That's right. So by the same measure, modified Rankin scale or this disability scale, the patients who were treated benefited. Mm -hmm. And they benefited at about the same, almost to the same magnitude as they did in the NIDS trial. Okay, that's really interesting. And then the more recent trial, EXTEND, which was performed by Mar and colleagues, was quite different from Wake Up in some respect, but also kind of tested this time interval paradigm. Can you tell us a bit more about EXTEND? EXTEND was designed differently. The idea in EXTEND is also to extend the number of patients, the population patients who can receive the drug. But what they did in EXTEND, they didn't try to estimate patients who were within the currently accepted time window of four and a half hours, but rather they simply said, can we treat certain patients, selected patients, up to and extend nine hours? And so what they did is they also used MR imaging to try to select patients who would still benefit and for whom such treatment would be safe. And they used MR in a way that's very similar to the way MR was used in the uh, mechanical thrombectomy trials. So they used MR perfusion imaging. And there, you're looking at this diffusion image again, and you're saying, how big is the core stroke that's already occurred? And again, you can see that within minutes. But on the perfusion image, you can also see the perfusion in the tissue around that core. So there is often in a stroke an area around the core where the perfusion is diminished. I see. And where the perfusion is diminished enough that you know that if that is not recanalized, eventually the stroke will be that big. So that's the different form of mismatch. It's a mismatch between the core infarct that we can't take away and this area of poorly perfused tissue that is at risk and that is going to infarct if we don't recanalize it or, or reperfuse it early. So they use that sort of mismatch to select patients. And so there, they know that these patients are beyond four and a half hours. They're going out to nine hours, but they're selecting the patients who get out to whatever time they get to, but still have a small core infarct by diffusion image. 
and have a significant territory at risk by perfusion image. And they also administered thrombolysis to these patients based on the standard dosing. And then in functional outcomes found that there was a clinical benefit as well. Correct. So by the same measure, again, they found a benefit. So by the modified Rankin scale, they found a benefit. It was a smaller benefit in magnitude, but they found a benefit. You've alluded to some of the differences between the two trials, but comparing Wake Up and Extend, can you tell us a bit more about how those trials were different? Right. So they were designed differently in the way that we mentioned. Uh, the Wake Up trial was designed to try to find patients with strokes within four and a half hours, and Extend was designed to try to find patients who tolerated their occlusion up to nine hours. So that's different. Uh, but it turns out there were a lot of overlaps. And in fact, 65% of the patients in the Extend trial were wake-up patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually treated those patients out to probably, in some cases, 12 hours or so, they estimated. So there was a lot of overlap in the patients they treated. And in fact, Extend was stopped ahead of schedule because Wake Up was published. And yes. when Wake Up was published, the authors also felt that there was enough overlap in these studies that they lost equipoise, they couldn't proceed with this study. But it turns out there are a lot of differences in the studies. The magnitude of effect is bigger in Awake than it is in Extend. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to look at some of the differences. Um, if you look at the ages, the patients were older by nearly a decade in the Extend trial. So age was roughly 65 in Wake Up and 72 in Extend. Okay. The patients were sicker coming in in Extend. So the based on the NIH stroke scales, the NIH stroke scales were about 6, which is a relatively small stroke in Wake Up, and they were a 10 to 12 in okay. uh, Extend. So the patients were coming in sicker. And those are two big determinants of outcomes. The rate of large vessel occlusion was yeah. also higher in Extend. So these studies were being done at a time when endovascular therapy was developing. Okay. And so I think that the way Wake Up was designed, they designed it so that patients simply were excluded if they were going to endovascular therapy. Um, I think a lot of the patients that had large vessel occlusions probably simply got excluded from that study. So the rate was about twice as much. That is, there were about twice as many large vessel occlusions in the EXTEND trial that mm -hmm. also did not get treated with endovascular therapy. And then the atrial fibrillation rate was a lot higher in EXTEND as well. Okay. All of those things, age, uh, NIH stroke scale coming in, the rate of large vessel occlusion, atrial fib, all of those things would tend to bias the study toward doing more poorly. So, okay, so they're basically studying significantly different populations, we'll okay. say. They had quite different groups in the trials in terms of the patient population that they were examining. But at the end of the day, both trials did show some benefit or statistically significant benefit in terms of their primary outcome to the patients who had been randomized to thrombolysis in both Wake Up and Extend, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. So they showed benefit, and I think it shows us that there are definitely patients who have strokes that began more than four and a half hours ago who we can treat, and we have to be able to select those patients. And it turns out we can use MR to successfully select patients. And you had also alluded to that the EXTEND trial was actually terminated earlier, so it was actually underpowered, and WAKE-UP trial was actually underpowered as well. So what effect do you think that has on the validity of these findings? So the WAKE-UP trial simply lost funding before yep. it finished, and they stopped early, and uh, as we said, EXTEND was stopped when WAKE-UP was published. 
So it would have been unfortunate if they hadn't had positive outcomes because then we would have looked at them underpowered and wondered if it wasn't simply a type 2 error. That is, if they'd had more patients, they would have um, had positive outcomes. So that didn't occur, and that's good. So it doesn't negate in any way the findings or maybe even be stronger if they mm-hmm. had more patients, if the trends had continued. Some of the negative trends, for example, the hemorrhage and the mm-hmm. mortality trends that were not in favor of the patients would have been possibly more significant had they had a larger population. And then also in some of the secondary outcomes, they lost power. So I think that they, especially in extent, they might have had more supporting data from the secondary outcomes had they had a larger population. Mm-hmm. Mm, Understood. So how do you perceive these studies will change practice? Well, they're very important. So now we have two Mm -hmm. well-done clinical trials that show a benefit uh, for IVTPA given beyond four and a half hours from last seen well time. So I think that will allow us to extend our treatment. Mm -hmm. I think the FDA is going to have to look, consider this and Mm -hmm. see if they're going to change labeling. I think organizations such as the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association are going to have to look at this and see if that changes their guidelines. And certainly mm-hmm. we'll be looking at it to change protocols. I see. I think what we'll end up doing is looking at these patients, imaging them with MR. I think we'll have to decide what the best MR approach is. I see. It may well be this diffusion flare mismatch, but looking at them with MR. Um, and then for those who have large vessel occlusions, we will probably continue to treat with urgent angiography and endovascular therapies because the outcomes in those trials, the magnitudes of the outcomes were greater. Mm-hmm. So I think that for these late patients who have large vessel occlusions, mechanical thrombectomy is probably the best therapy. But for patients who don't qualify for mechanical thrombectomy or for patients who are perhaps in a, a setting where it's not available, then we will be looking at the MR parameters and treating the patients who qualify. Okay, brilliant. Thanks a lot for joining us in discussion today, Dr. Feske. If I could ask you to summarize, what would you say your key takeaway points would be? It's not a takeaway from these studies, but one huge issue with stroke is always prevention. So mm-hmm. the reason stroke has decreased from the third to the fifth cause of death uh, it, it, over time is probably more successful preventive measures. So that's always important. Mm-hmm. But I think the big takeaways are, one, we need to move fast. So even though we find that we can treat patients later. The message is not, now we have nine hours to treat them, so take your time. Yeah. Put your thumbs for nine hours before you treat them. It's clear that the earlier you treat them, the earlier they recanalize, the smaller their strokes will be and the better the outcomes will be. So that's very important. Mm-hmm. But I think what these studies show us is that we can, in fact, use MRI mm-hmm. effectively as a tissue clock to determine where patients stand with respect to their particular stroke and to identify patients who, for whom it's safe and for whom it's still potentially beneficial, that is, who have a lot at risk but who have not already had big infarctions, who we can treat from the endovascular studies with that therapy and from these two studies with IV therapies. And so I think that's uh, the biggest takeaway from these. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I think we're going to have to adjust in the same way we did after uh, any of these studies that change stroke therapies. The whole community has to adjust so that we can move patients properly through the system to get those treated who can benefit. And the fact that this depends on MRI is a big deal. Yeah. Because in general, MRI is not available um, in most emergency rooms. And in a lot of hospitals, it's not available as an urgent study. So I think that's going to be a big adjustment in the community, how we address that.
Thank you all for listening to this episode of Curbside Consults. Please visit our guide on acute stroke at resident360.nejm.org. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Stephen Pesky. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, including Karen Buckley, Carl Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to Dr. Angela Castellanos and Dr. Amanda Fernandez, my co-fellows at NEJM this year, and our educational editor, Dr. O.P. Hammond-Vick. At Curbside Consults, we want your feedback, so please email us at resident360 at nejm.org, leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts, or feel free to reach out to us via the NEJM Resident 360 website. I'm Dr. Angela Chen, Editorial Fellow at NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.